What's good everyone, this is Cheats and we are here for the next edition, a very special political local election edition of The Table. We are here at the wonderful headquarters of Health Warrior in Scott's edition. They are a amazing company doing amazing things nationwide uh, with the process of Chia, Chia Seeds, Chia Bars, they do everything. But Health Warrior is locally uh, headquartered here in Richmond. They hire a lot of employees in Richmond and they do a great job. So we're so glad that they have offered their space for this, uh, what I think is an eclectic gathering of uh, community and civic leaders. I am joined by Libby, Adria, Free, Chad, Micah, Bam Bam, but Micah, Matthew, Black Lick, Ross, and the man holding the camera behind the camera is Matthew. Um, we are also joined by our uh, wonderful uh, table staff. Shout out Jordan. How's it going? But we're really going to kick it off uh, and have a really, uh, a hopefully frank, meaningful, and a great discussion about the issues that are facing Richmond City, the Richmond region, as it relates to uh, this upcoming election on November 8th. As they always say, you want to think, feel, and be local when you're talking about these issues. So we're going to talk as much about the mayor's race, school board, and city council, uh, and the issues that are facing Richmond. The first question that I do want to throw out there, um, there's no secret about kind of the way that I think the narrative of this Richmond mayor's race is shaping up. And it seems as if you have a choice between a vision for the future on one side, and any of the elected officials you're talking about may have a plan for the future, uh, or you're facing a side that kind of says competency. Richmond, under the Mayor Jones administration, may not have had the most comp track record for competency. So if you elect me, you're electing someone that is competent and can make sure that the grass is being cut and the pot. Nothing necessarily uh, vision focused. And I mean, so I'll just throw it out there. And I could be wrong. And I want to get uh, everybody's sense on what is the most critical thing you look for when you're looking for a candidate. Are you looking for a vision of the future or are you looking for competency? It's kind of hard to break down all the candidates, but for example, if we're talking about LeVar Stoney versus Jack Berry, if you're looking at LeVar, you're probably saying, well, this guy has, he may look the part and he may have a great vision for the future of Richmond. And if you're looking at a Jack Berry, you're looking at a guy that says, hey, his future may not be a, a, the actual focus, but we're looking for a guy that may be able to make sure the books are measured on time, uh, make sure that the utilities and the situations in the city that have plugged us for the last couple of years may be fixed. Or you could be looking for, you know, whatever, Joe, Michelle, John Blouse, maybe a hybrid of both. So I want to throw it out there. What do you think is the most important issue when you're looking for a candidate right now? Is it competency or is it a vision for the future? You're looking at me. You can start, Ross, or anyone. Anyone, jump right in. I mean, I don't know if it's so, either, I don't know if it's either or. I think it might be a little both and. Um, I think I'm looking for someone who can motivate and lead staff and department directors. And mm -hmm. I'm not looking for the mayor to go out and cut the grass himself. Like, that's not the kind of competency I'm looking for. I'm looking for a guy who can run the ship. So I think, it, so I think that vision and leadership, you need that. Um, otherwise, they're not going to be able to get their get the ship moving without that, you know? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that someone without big vision could inspire his, that's his it. team. I think to your point, it's like, you're looking for someone that's competent enough to hire somebody that is competent. Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, I agree with that. The mayor, I think, what happens is a lot of the times is the people at the bottom, if you will, aren't led well. And for some reason, because we have nobody's face or name in between, that person, that piece of grass is not cut. And the mayor, we go directly to the mayor to say he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is to the point that that's the only person we get to meet with or talk to or see or know. Um, for me, it's about somebody that's going to put people in place to make the city feel better. Because for me, a, a community that feels good does good. Mm -hmm. And you can have the most competent people in the world, but if they're jerks, it doesn't do anything to make the community work better together. That's a good point. But you know what I would say? I think Richmond feels great. I agree. Yeah. I think Richmond Parts feels Richmond. really good. Parts of Richmond feel good. Jump, jump in there. Because I would, I would, my, my assessment would be Richmond feels great. They just don't feel great about government. 
It depends on which rich. Yeah, jump I mean, as always, it's a tale of two cities here, and you have you know the vibrant cafe art scene, but then you also have a very significant chunk of the population that has literally been left behind and disinvested in, um, that lives in entrenched racially segregated poverty, as we all know here. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, adding to what Michael was saying, another feature of the new mayor that is really important to me is that it be someone who can um, draw support from across the city. And it troubles me that our two leading candidates, that Jack Berry um, does draw most of his support from three overwhelmingly white affluent districts. Sure. And in contrast, Morrissey, of course, has overwhelmingly African-American um, district support. The latest polls um, is Morrissey's leading in six, and he has the strongest support on the African-American community and heavily populated yeah, African-American. That's because Morrissey's whole thing, he's hooded, man. Yeah, I mean, when I grew up, I, it was always some kind of Morrissey thing. Morrissey is ratchet. That's right. I mean, and the thing that I can, the thing I look for in any sort of political figure is whether I can identify with them. And right. I, yeah. I'm not one to be caught up in this or that or this. I'm not a big believer, honestly, in some sort of process. It's designed to be a systematic policy because I believe that the fate of all of us as individuals is governed by our own actions and our own accountability. So when I look at some sort of system, some person is supposedly going to lead it to some sort of place, really I still rely on myself and the people around me who I can influence through trying to uphold a higher standard. So I mean, you know, yeah, you got somebody who draws from the side of, you know what I'm saying, where it's like, oh, white people. Bottom line is, white people aren't going anywhere. Black people aren't going anywhere. You know, everybody's going to be where they're going to be, and the system's going to be what the system is. But isn't that more of a reason to have a leader or a mayor that can work across all of Richmond is there, yeah, I mean, is there a confidence, or is anyone confident that Morrissey can work well in the first, second, third? And is there anyone confident I mean, I that Jack can work in the African-American communities? No, or, no, or, no, no, no. I think the bigger question, though, to ask ourselves, we always get caught up in trying to deal with the face. Just like you said, you get to see a mayor, that's a person you can complain to. The bigger question that I think we all fail to ask every time this election stuff comes around is, do we believe in the, per in the candidate, or have we yet found a way to convince ourselves to believe in the system? Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about that, though, and, I'll, and it's, it's, that's a point that I want to emphasize in regards to one of the biggest things that we're talking about, and it goes back to um, what was earlier said, there's a systematic problem, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, when you're talking about generational poverty and, and getting out of that cycle, and, and we got quite a few educators here, Libby, you're one of them, you see kids every day that are faced in a cycle of uh, of challenges, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When you look to things like city council, school board, and this mayor's election, is there anyone that speaks to you that says, even acknowledges the fact that we have a systematic problem and I've got a plan to fix it? Um, so I wasn't planning to like endorse a particular candidate. <laughs> it's fine. Today, it's fine. We'll go around and ask them. I want to start with a very brief story. Um, last Friday, I sat on somebody else's crusty poo in the toilet in the faculty bathroom on the history hall. Mm -hmm. And it was the third day that that crusty poo was on that toilet seat. The problem is, and it had not gone unreported, but it was impossible for the janitorial staff to get to it because of the other problems within the building. And some of these are problems like um, the light fixture above the toilet, and it's a black toilet seat, so it's hard to see the poo. There's that. <laughs> But the light bulb had been replaced, but the socket itself was shorting out. So now we're like, we've got to call an electric, like we've got to call in the electrical people, and that takes usually about two weeks in RPS. So, so that poo for me, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. I'll move on. <laughs> but um, like, I went and taught seventh period after that terrible experience, and then I was thinking the whole time, I'm going to go back to class and I'm going to talk about big picture stuff when what really matters to my students is that they also have the experience of like crappy bathrooms, unorganized chaos, sometimes we even try to organize the chaos. I love my school and I love my administration, but like you guys were talking earlier about big vision versus competency. I want both. Mm -hmm. I want all of it and we need it. And the, the tale of two cities I, I think is true. Although my students love Art 180 and they love to get to Maymont when they can, so they know that it's there and they hear about the festivals. But like um, LeVar Stoney said in the last Style Weekly, he said something like, I'm interested in bringing clubs and after school programming to public high schools. 
that was the first time that I was like, yes! Mm -hmm. Oh, that's like tangible, mm -hmm. and it would be awesome. That's why I, I'm kind of excited about that. But I think to your point, a lot of the kids, um, working with some of the kids in the inner city, uh, especially at the elementary schools, I went to a class to mentor this class, and I noticed for the entire week that I was there, they did not go outside one time. Mm -hmm. So now, yeah. vitamin D is one of the most essential vitamins that we need to feel good. So these kids are secluded into this building that, first of all, I would rather go read in the Richmond City Jail than in some of these schools to free my mind and mm -hmm. be in an environment that produces thought, good thought. Mm -hmm. So if these kids are staying in this environment all day, not going outside, which means that also the element of STEM, you're not getting any arts in the school, um, the bands and stuff are being taken away. So how are we producing and developing both sides of the brain so that these kids can open their mind? So that competency on one side, as well as that future vision on the other side is more than needed. But I also think that in order to make that happen, we can't eliminate how we got here. Mm -hmm. We have to go way back to how this crap started, to how a white person became a white person and a black person became a black person, how our identity started to become taken away. Because that systematic principle is the same systematic principle that has our community where it is in the parts that aren't growing. Mm -hmm. And we, we have to free ourselves I from that. I want to jump in on that, that too, uh, because I think you know, this whole idea of competency versus vision is important to think about. So I was at George with too, uh, facilitating a meeting there. Uh, and I had to use the bathroom, and there was not a single shred of toilet paper mm -hmm. in the bathroom that I mm -hmm. used. And I, that just drove it home for me of like, this stuff, getting the fundamentals right, it's not sexy to be the mayor who campaigns on getting toilet paper uh, in, in <laughs> bathrooms, true. right? Like, that's not a winning campaign slogan, but it needs to happen, right? And I do a lot of consulting with City Hall, and some of the fundamentals just really need to be fixed. I mean, HR, legal, procurement, these kinds of things, again, it's not sexy to run on, but if they're not fixed, then none of these great programs, none of the social service department folks, none of the community wealth building folks can get anything done because the system is so broken. But what I'd say is you need a vision to say competency for what? Right? If we're going to address these issues, it's not just competency for its own sake of running a good organization. It's competency to some end. And that end has to be bringing Richmond together so that everybody enjoys the benefits of the great stuff and that's I, happening. And I want to be mindful because the lines get blurred and they always get blurred when you talk about local elections. Because when we talk about the mayor specifically, that person isn't going to be the person that's even responsible for the low, the competency level of the schools. You remember the debate on Monday, they asked um, if all of the candidates that were on stage would retain Dana Bedden. And LeVar quickly and smartly said, it's a decision for the school board. And then all of them followed suit, basically except did. one, and said it's a decision. <laughs> so I think... What we do need to talk about, and we, we will because youth and all of them, it's really funny. Isn't it, isn't it kind of funny that if you ask all of the candidates what their number one issue is, and the answer is going to be Richmond Public Schools, but then when you ask them specific questions about schools, they're like, well, it's the school board and the people that you got to put. So we've got to be very mindful of what we're talking about. But I, wanna, I do want to go back, and I'll let Chad jump in here, and I want to get free in here as well, because I do want to go back to the individual candidates we have. So if you're talking about Michelle Mosby or John Bliles, you're talking about uh, Jack Berry, LeVar Stoney, or Joe Morrissey, the idea of them working with all of Richmond is something that I want to really get back to because I think that is extremely essential um, to the success of, if you're going to close the gap, there still may always be two Richmonds per se, or something of that nature mm -hmm. or that feel. But if you're going to get close to closing the gap, I feel like there has to be a presence of one of those leaders making sure that everybody in every district knows who they are and feels that they're accessible and working there. And I, do we have a candidate, you think, Free? Or Chad, do you think, do we have a candidate that answers that for you? What do you think, Chad? I mean, I definitely think we need a candidate who does answer it because I, it's a big job for the school board to do right now by themselves. Mm -hmm. Nine people with mixed motivations getting together, mixed intentions, mixed ideas on what makes a successful school board. I don't have much faith that nine people will get us out of this mess that our schools are in, which are really at a tipping point of crisis, that if it's not, something's not done soon, 
I believe public education will come to an end in Richmond or it'll turn into something that's really just for, you know, the lower caste of our society and get pushed in there. So I think we need a strong mayor to be able to work with everybody across the city so they can also work with their representatives and the school board and the city council. Because I think if we don't come together, city council, mayor, and school board together at under one strong vision, then I don't see how we can get out of the mess. As a teacher in Richmond for 15 years, I've worked in you know, schools that would be called poor socioeconomic conditions and in schools that had better. And we're on our last wheel right mm -hmm. now. And I do know, mm -hmm. I think John Belows has certainly offered a long-term funding plan for into the future. Mm -hmm. They offer what they're calling the Roanoke model, where 40% of the taxes generated will go to Richmond Public Schools every year regardless, which will cut some of the budget battle every year, which will cut some of the anxiety we feel for being able to plan for the future. And I know quite another... Uh, Quite a number of the other candidates have also quoted Balao's on that, saying this Roanoke model is good. So that's that's the best funding vision I've heard so far. And I think we need a funding vision in order for us to then step up and make a vision for what we want our school system to look like. Because if we don't have a vision for what it looks like, private industry will come in and shape it for us. And that's something as a public school teacher I really fear. Interesting. For you can take that, or I do. Like I said, I do want to jump about that leadership and and kind of closing that gap between whether you call it the haves and have-nots, the south side and the north. Do you know what I'm seeing yeah, about I do. that? I what, do. what do you think about that? Okay, so I think what's happening is that we have to make sure that as we move forward as a community, the access for entrepreneurial prosperity is available to all people. And I think there's like a very viable, um, uh, I guess you could say, like um, commodity that we have because of our history. Um, I just went to UVA yesterday, I just got off the road. There was a um, conference that Preservation Virginia does every year. And the focus of that this year was about heritage tourism. Mm -hmm. And the numbers that have been produced came out of VCU. They have this guy, he's from Italy, he came in and he did this huge study which hasn't been given to the world yet, maybe two weeks from now. It will. but. Seven billion dollars is spent in Virginia every year in heritage tourism. So being the fact that we are the capital of Confederacy and most of the people that come to Virginia are looking for the Confederate and the Civil War history. One of the things that I've been working really hard to do with um, Untold RVA, the project that I founded as a result of applying for FEAST, um, was to be able to make a commodity of our hidden history and to put it in the hands of the people. When I say put it in the hands of the people, I'm talking about those who have been left out of the prosperity maker, doer, DIY startup culture. We have, if there's seven billion dollars on the table and Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy, then I'm looking for opportunities for whoever's going to be the, the mayor of this town to hear that you can empower the brilliant minds of this community, not just those who are, you know, so already is there, known. Is there a candidate that is running right now that is speaking to that in a specific way? That's the cool thing about it. There isn't one that's speaking to that, but there is one that's listening to mm -hmm. me when I tell them you should but that's pay attention good, but, to mm -hmm. that. Well, why? So that's what you want as a person right. that's going to listen to mm -hmm. those of us who have figured this out. The whole thing, the bottom line about this is that you're never going to find one brilliant individual that's going to be able to know everything sure. about sure. this city. If you want the person, and I hate to say it like this, no, no, but... John Belisles is the person that I find to be the most malleable of everybody. Mm -hmm. He's the most shapeable person. Mm -hmm. I can sit there and say to him, what you didn't know is that if you were to allow this person and this person and this person to get in your ear a little bit, then they would tell you what you need to do to be successful. And he's been listening. So to me, the best candidate is the person who's the most malleable to the people who are doing the work anyway without any dollar amount motivating them. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, Black Lick, boom. You do what you do without a dollar. I haven't seen Chief lose money trying to bring sure. the hip-hop culture. Not because he cares about hip-hop that much, which he does anyway, but because he sees that people are committing their entire lives to this art form. And he's thinking, well, if I create a space for them to do what they do, then they'll be economically, you know, Propelling yeah, their I families. On, I interviewed a dude on the radio Saturday night, and I told him, "Bro, I get paid. Bro, I make paper. You know, what I'm saying, eighty percent of the time, I've built myself to a point where I can make money outside of it, but still do hip hop." That's right. And his response was, "You're Hollywood, bro." 
And I was like, what? Triple. Yeah, Hollywood? You know what I mean? So no, that's it. That's it. No, go ahead. That's it. But like, I believe that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do need an ear hustler out there. You know what I'm saying? Someone who's willing to listen. But we also really do need to have something that speaks to the people to show them that, you know, success is not something that's based upon the past. No, it's based upon a new vision and a new way to actually look at things and a mentality that you have to continue to carry within you when there is no profit so that you can actually manifest that. But do you understand that, and, and again, I come to this table, unfortunately, having to be the bearer of bad news for the rest of the city of Richmond that there is, I'm sorry but I'm sure that some of you can actually back me up on this but there is an actual power infrastructure in this city that has deliberately disempowered the voices of those oh, who are coming this. with an alternative view of how to move this case in point if you look down at the African ancestral burial ground mm-hmm. and I'll give you a very brief they call it the um, Richmond's um, Lumpkin's Slave Jail is what the um, National you know, Museum, the African American Museum in D.C., they got the same people that developed that to come down and come to the African Ancestral Burial Ground on the other side of the tunnel and build this. And they want to call it the Lumpkin's Slave Jail. I have said, I don't know how many times to the people who have put themselves in authority over there, don't call it the Lumpkin's Slave Jail, number one. Lumpkin is the torture man. And number two, don't call it the Slave Jail because their condition was enslaved, not that they were slaves. And don't call it a jail because the babies are going to think that the ancestors did something wrong. Right. Call it the, and even on their own sign, it says the, um, the, uh, Devil's Half Acre is what the people that were enslaved there called it. So whose history are you telling? When I sit down there and I sweat my weave out and I can't, you know what I'm saying, get a message through to these people because they're deliberately entrenched on being able to tell it the way they want to and that they divert everything that I've done for the last year. I don't. Ross gave me a column to be able to speak to this. I've got people right now sending me to California to speak on the East Coast next week paying me $65 an hour, but yet I can't even get anyone to listen to me in my own city. You understand? So that's what I'm trying to tell you is that there's deliberate um, swaying of the perceptions because they don't want us to be able to can get a message in, in, can I jump in, in our quick? city. Just because the, the, the way that you express that, right, that the frustration with people, they're say there are deaf. people that are tone deaf and not yes. listening, I would make an assumption, and I want to be very clear about the generalization but i want to make i will make an assumption that says that 90 to 95 to 99 percent of the individuals supporting morrissey feel that frustration that no one's listening to them that's right and the list of candidates that are running of all of those folks joe is the only one that is listening to me and therefore and, and i think black liquid said it as well um they, they, you know, there's an identity. Yeah, they're not. They're going to vote for the people that identify. Shame with. on the other candidates. Now, they let a pedophile be the only one. That's now, now here's the thing. Right. That's, that's, shame this on this you. is my question. Shame on in you. Regards a pedophile to is the only one All listening? of this, because does character, mm-hmm. when you're talking about leadership, elected officials, role models for kids, all the things we're talking about, the image of the city, does character matter or, mm-hmm. to an extent where? Does it matter more, or is there is there a struggle there with? Is so should it, we I support identify? him because of the fact that he's listening? What I'm trying to what his character. I don't is? even know if it's listening as much as I identify with this individual. Well, I think you have to look at right. look at a, a successful one of the most successful mayors ever, Marion Barry. Uh-oh. We all knew his troubles. We all knew his faults. But if you go to D.C., say something bad about Marion Barry. Say something bad about Marion Barry. Right, right. You got a problem. Yeah, right. And the reason you got a problem is because it didn't matter how many whores they caught him with. It didn't matter how many times he did crack in public. One thing Southeast knew, D.C. knew is that if anybody tried to do anything against Southeast, Mary Barry was going to have his hair that back. Hard. They knew that gentrification wasn't going to happen under his belt. Now you look at since he's died, what's going on in Southeast? Sure. Gentrification is now starting sure. to happen. Sure. Under his watch, it wasn't going to happen. I think that same identity we have here in Richmond when it comes to Joe Morrissey. Morrissey has been fighting for the lower income community way back in the days. You know, before they even took his license the first time, I remember the commercial, I'm 50 and 1. This was way before he left America, left America and moved over uh, to another country. So now that he's back, he's a politician, he's the transparent one. Everyone else, we don't know what your character flaws are. Mm-hmm. Joe Morrissey is out there, and the community has seen him not only go down, but they've seen him fight back through it and come back to the top. There's a community that identifies with that. 
So regardless of his character issues and whether or not he's listening, there's that connection that these people got that I can believe in him more because I know his faults. Right. I think mm. I'm, I'm encouraged to see, I think uh, there's been shifts in the mayors that aren't Joe Morrissey. I think Joe Morrissey is pulling them in the direction of there are two rich men, one's black, one's white. This is, mm-hmm. that's his, his closing remarks are always that, uh, one's great, one's terrible. Uh, and you, if you've listened to the language of everyone else since the beginning of all these forums, they've switched from using language of like, Richmond's on fire, Richmond's great, we just gotta keep it going. That language no longer exists in the debates anymore. Now wow. the mayors are saying, you know, we've got a lot of work to do with schools, we've got a lot of work to do with poverty, like we, we can be great if we just work real hard. And that's Morrissey pulling that conversation. Uh, and you've also seen a thing that I'm also encouraged by, it probably doesn't matter, but I'm encouraged by it is that we've seen less attacks on his character. Because it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. His character doesn't matter. It matters to me. It doesn't matter. What do you mean less attacks? You mean from the other candidates? From the other candidates. Yeah. And now the attacks are... I think you've actually seen the public attacks. No, no, no. no. So the they've just gone on air. Not, not less attacks in right. quantity. The types of attacks have shifted away from character to more policy-based. Like LeVar thing on Monday, almost all of his attacks to Morrissey were based on his record in the General Assembly, um, his other stuff. Like it's, it's becoming more Why policy-based. Why do you think that is? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. You want to know why I think it doesn't matter? No, I think it's. I honestly think it's. You're you're throwing a sponge on. You're throwing something on a wall and you're seeing what sticks. And if you if you've read the tide that everybody knows a certain thing, if everybody knows Morrissey's history, you know now, and it hasn't stuck that type of attack. Now, I think what Michelle has said is. Well, maybe they don't know directly, and right. we're going to go on air and make this direct attack. Right. But me, the more me, direct let they do, though. Let me transition to ask one thing, and I want to jump to Matthew really quick. In regards to all the things that we're talking about, and there's specific candidates. Matthew, you are not a black male, or, a black, or you're not an African-American, you're not a black person. Should... Should a joke for people on the yeah. <laughs> But there, there is a question there that should uh, the large majority at black community that supports a Morrissey candidacy, should there be a concern if he does lose, say they get to a runoff and he loses, should that community feel as if, should they feel like no one's still listening to them? They put somebody else, like, should, should we be, like, one of the things that I think they're just starting to now talk about in the national scene, and I don't want to jump gotcha. there. But the fact is, what happens the day after election day? So because you have really bad. You come to the science museum and watch comedian Michael Bam Bam White. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody understand? Anybody yeah. understand what I'm trying to say yeah. here? I do. What do we do? So it's, it's yeah. interesting, and, and it, I, I just want to point out that you're asking me to speak as a white man about how black. <laughs> Uh, that is exactly, it's a great trap. It's, it's like, because I know Matthew's got this heat. I love it. I love it. So, let's go, let's go back to that question about character. Does character matter? And I would say absolutely yes, but the character that matters to the people that support Joe is the character of someone who has their back, right? And so I'm going to go back to what Free said. Why is he the only person in this race that those, that those communities that are supporting him feel like he's the only one that has their back, right? So I would say, Character does matter to everybody. It's just which part of their character. Right. right? But to answer the other part of your question, where a colleague of mine is doing a, a project called America Listens, trying to get white non-Trump supporters to listen empathetically to Trump supporters. That's real. Right. Because one of the things, and it's, it's, it's two parts. One, we need to understand as best we can, and not through a media filter, what's going on with people who feel like Trump is a great person to support them. Mm-hmm. We also need to understand what happens to people, to especially white people, who don't support Trump when they engage with people who do, and how do we build how do we build that community so that we can get more allies, mm-hmm. so that we can get more folks who can mm-hmm. actually work together across that particular mm-hmm. difference. And it will be interesting to think about, you know, if people mm-hmm. feel continue to feel disenfranchised if Joe loses. Is there or the other side. If Joe right. wins, there's going to be a whole side that's that's going to be concerned about working. Are there things we can do to continue to get back to Adrian's but point? But I like the if right. Joe loses thought that you were saying. If he does lose, who's going to pick up those concerns for the city of Richmond right. that right now is the leading concerns? And I think it goes back to what Adrian said at the beginning. We need somebody who can really actually mm-hmm. represent the entire Richmond community and bring us together because we do. So I mean, if you look at Detroit, right, the segregation lines in Detroit are basically the city limits. Yeah. La- uh, last time I did some work there, it's less than 10% white within the city. Yeah. That's growing a little bit. Richmond, the segregation lines that were created by FHA and redlining and all of that, right, were right up and down 95, or Route 1 at the time, which split 
the jurisdiction of Richmond. So we've been forced, despite the fact that we're just as segregated as Detroit, our segregation crosses those jurisdictional lines, yeah. right? So we have had to deal with each other. We've had to live with each other. We've gone back and forth in terms of who's in the majority on city council and who's not, right? But I think that we actually have some, some strengths that other communities don't in that we have not actually just completely left each other alone and said this is the black jurisdiction this is the white one and we got to figure out how to continue I, I disagree a little just because when i was running, walking around trying to get signatures to get on the ballot mm -hmm. in all different neighborhoods and of course i was going in neighborhoods that people that look like me were not going in mm -hmm. and so people were looking at me at first mm -hmm. distrustful and it wasn't long i would talk to people and i would try to get along and i would see a little light fla flash in their eyes where all of a sudden they were like oh wait a minute I could talk to this dude, and then we would talk for a while. Now I realized that Joe Morris is also the only person that was going door to door and talking to people. And I don't mean going and handing out literature, I mean actually discussing, looking people in the eyes, listening, empathizing, these kinds of things. Now I don't think, I don't think Joe Morris is doing it the way I was doing it, because I actually was out there trying to learn, I was trying to, you know, cross the, the racial divide that we have. And while we're all sitting here at the table together, and I know a lot of people do, Rubbell was together at the city council or at the school board, at the level of walking down Meadow Bridge or going into Creighton, mm -hmm. we're not rubbing elbows there. Mm -hmm. and, and people there are not seeing any white people come in there and talk to them, only talk at them. And it's one thing I noticed real strongly as I did it, because I would see really a, a mm -hmm. look in the eyes change when all of a sudden somebody's like, wait a minute. This dude's not like the other dudes I've talked to. Mm. And I know Joe's experienced that too. And I do think it's a damn shame that we have this divide and some race hustler like Joe Morris, he can come in and do what he's doing. Because I believe he knows what he's doing. I don't believe he is sincere. He's not a, oh, he's not part, a man of the people, the practice, right? That's part of the practice. It's part of the practice. But if people looked at him, he lives in a really big house on seminary. He's got a couple <laughs> houses. He's not, he's not the people. That's right. You know, he's not the people. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, being white, doesn't make you the savior of the world. You don't have to go in the neighborhoods and make sense to anybody. Stop trying. Empower black people who get it. That's the problem. White people in this city feel like they have to go everywhere and be accepted at everything, and you will not. Just like I realize I can't go in certain places. Right, but what are you saying? Are you saying they shouldn't go? What I'm saying Especially is stop going. For you, you, no, don't go. I've been saying this to, to John Belisles all along. You would tell him not to go to where? Don't go. Get, empower the people who why, support. Because you why would you not go, though? Because you can send someone that... Well, can't they, go, can't they go with that person? You ain't gotta go. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, no, 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 no. Because, because. Yeah, no, 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 no. Let me let me make this point. Right. And this is this is what it all boils down to. People have a a, a a Jesus complex, you know. People have a saviorism complex that they think that it's them that has to be the one to bring the answers. Empower those who are bright, brilliant, black and connected to be able to be your surrogates and pay them to be able to go in and talk and say, I'm here on behalf can, of. Can because I, you're never going want, to I want to understand. That's, 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 that's what white people have been doing to run black communities. They yeah, have surrogates that go out and keep Bullshit surrogates. No, 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 no. Bullshit surrogates. No, but I still hate people going out surrogates for these communities with white people. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. Bullshit I want to because I want to understand this because we got to look at the reality of the of the situation of the city currently right now mm -hmm. and currently right now you've got two white males that are leading to be mayor mm -hmm. right uh, and then you've got obviously LeVar um, uh, 35 years old African-American and then you've got John um, and Michelle and so technically of the t of the top five candidates you have you have at least the ones, you know, three of them are white males. Mm -hmm. I want to be very, I want to be very clear in what you're saying because I want to want to. I can't accept mm -hmm. that whoever is elected the leader, no matter what race he is, sure. that that person will not go into any community in any sector. I didn't say ever. Man. I didn't say at ever. Any time. I, Chief, what I'm just basically trying to explain to you is that we have a brilliant human capacity here that's untapped from people that understand because they're intrinsically part of those communities. We've got this um, cusp of people that are in the community but also they can relate to people like the mayoral candidates. Like all of our friends. And I'm just saying put them 
in to be able to talk to people that are already on that same page. It's not organic to send somebody who doesn't really belong to I that see your point, but here's what I would say to that. Here's what I say. First of all, my man, and I'll say who my man is, and my man is LeVar. That's, that's who I represent. That's who I like. And the reason I like LeVar, he's like my Mike Tomlin. First of all, he's going to be spongy enough to listen right now, but he's young enough to grow with the city. Even when he doesn't, even when he's done being mayor in eight years, if he used to win two terms, he's still going to be an intricate, intricate part to how the city continues to grow. And he'll set up a lot of foundations. I also think he's a guy that can go into Mosby Court, even though I don't think he would identify more with the Mosby Court people right. as... Joe Morris. Right, does. so uh, that's a great you, that's you know. a great question though because so, when we're just looking at things in out, outer side white or black it's terms, not black right? Or white. Right, but but if you're looking at it that way and you say, oh, this individual's white and he may not necessarily identify in this community, I can tell you right now, and I'm not. This isn't an endorsement, but. Joe will identify, I think, more than Lavar, who's a African American oh, man. Now, with yeah. that said. It's, it's got to be driving Michelle nuts. It is. <laughs> right? It is. Right? Like it's got, so because you, uh, you uh, there's one thing that is never, I, I don't fully understand, and I, and I want to I wanna try to understand it, um, because you look at the demographics of the city, you look at the challenges we have in the city, and you look at the, the list of candidates that have obviously made their way to the top running into election day, and my question I've asked openly, um, and when you talk about young, inspiring African Americans or minorities, is it is there a reason that we guys can pinpoint why they, we don't feel like there's more of a bench system or more of a system that highlights, not necessarily even young, but the fact that you're looking at Joe, you're looking at Jack, you're looking at John, Lavar is is as a candidate like. Is there, is there a reason why we don't, is it just... Here's, I think there's a, a big reason why, and I think part of that reason, to Free's point, um, and here's why I hear you, I believe in what you're saying, but here's why I disagree. Bo Jackson, I'm a big sports fan. Yeah. Bo Jackson, one of the highest recruiters, the greatest athlete we've ever seen in our lifetime. Bo Jackson went home, and sitting in Bo Jackson's house was Paul Bear Bryant's assistant coach. He got to Bo Jackson's house first. When he got there, he talked, yada, yada, yada. The very next day, he went in and bat died. The actual coach of Auburn University was sitting at his table, the same place. Mm-hmm. Paul Bear Bryant's very, very, very knowledgeable assistant coach was sitting. Because Pat Dye was sitting there, he said Pat Dye didn't say really anything that convinced him that Pat Dye was a good coach. But because he was sitting there, he went to Auburn. Right. So, it's matters. So, so my point is, even LeBar may be able to go into Mosby Court and not identify if, gotta go. if Bilal sent a representative, it's going to be the same old thing. Point I'm trying to make is that we've got to begin to empower people in our communities to have some authority other than just this person that's sitting up at the absolute top. They're stratified. After the fact, yes. But during the running, no. After the fact, yes. After the okay. fact, you see. No, I think, I, I think there's a hybrid there that I agree with you with. Is that you? But I think they go with that person. I think, I think they identify who that free is. No, no, I think you identify who that free is. We got three and you weeks go left, to that right? community with free. Yeah. I right, see what you're right. saying, but we got three weeks left, right? And if you look at these people's schedule, in order for them to be at every single thing, it's difficult, right? But if you actually, this is what it's all about when you deal with community wealth building. This is what you deal with when you empower your community. This is what Feast, I'll give you an example. Feast RVA was all about. You take somebody who everybody who's powerful in the community in this particular sector says we put our energy behind we skill share we push this person we say we've chosen this person and we make them important I wasn't anybody I wasn't a historian until Bill Martin at the Valentine and Feast RBA voted me and said this is the people's historian so I understand the power of empowering a person and then letting them do what they do and that's what I really want to see of the whoever the mayor is. Can I just say real quick too if the first time you're doing it is during campaign it's not, it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. but there's people that need to be empowered now. You talk there's about malleability. People. Wouldn't the candidate want to go in there and say, I'm here? Kind of, Let's but there's not enough time this. to go everywhere. And then to point. Bam's point that he had made originally, hire those people once you're in office on day two right. who can go in and can identify and say, I'm here on behalf of mayor. That's right. I would, go in, I would go in before that and say, 
like Matthew said, before you're running, <laughs> when you're thinking about getting to know the community and learning, but also while you're running, I think it's almost essential to have those people identified on the ground, even Absolutely. if they endorse you or not, right. and say, hey, Libby, can you take me around mm -hmm. your school? I'd love and to. And you've got to go with that person. Yeah, but there's just, really. it's hard to get everywhere in the last little few weeks. And I'm just right. saying, in the yeah, meantime, in between right. time, you kind of have to do empower people. It'll show that you have the spirit of empowering people when you do get in office if you think, put people into power. I think Matt's point, now. though, is if you're doing it three weeks out, you're too late. And I, 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 I kind of agree. We were talking about why Morrissey was so successful, though, because right. he has done these it's things. A, it's a saying. lifetime yeah. of. Did you know that Morrissey went to the satellite in Southside, which is the ratchetest place I ever? Go. But they, and they, they, they were giving away free chicken dinners at night. Let me do this because we, we are running short on time and I do want to get through. But it's uh, a pedophile. Really quick, we're going to do a, uh, a, what they do in the debate world is a rapid fire round, and I, I want to get everybody's answer on this as quickly as possible. What is the most critical and important issue facing the city of Richmond and the region right now? Black liberty. Accountability. Accountability and government? Accountability of people, of parents. You can say school, but really, we talk about saving the kids, but we don't talk about empowering the parents to understand that it's their world. And nobody cleaned this shit up. It's up to you. Ross? Uh, I, I'm paid to say transit, but I, I think it's got to be uh, <laughs> like just good governance. Like We have to trust the, the system again. I think we just saw it in action. We started out doing okay, and then we scratched the surface of our need for racial reconciliation, and it's really deep, mm. and we need to address it. Mm. Um, entrenched, concentrated poverty, and um, our unhealed wounds from white racial oppression. Yeah, I would definitely have to say that um, temp agencies that are being given the legal um, space to be able to take from a 17 an hour uh, earner to knock it down to $11. They need to be run out of town the same way that paramutual bedding and all that other stuff um, have been. And, and, and what is that when you want the predatory yeah, lending yeah, is paramount? Yeah, yeah. Yes, if a person is making $17. Chair said at a debate he already eradicated plating lending, right? No, no, no. Did you say that on Monday? Yes, but right? no, what is I'm. That, is that true? No. What, well, what I'm yeah. talking about is if a person is making $17 an hour through a temp agency and the temp agency takes $6 of every every okay. hour, they're not making enough to be able to care about their kids going to school. We're defying the rapid fire. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Chad. I would say just ser serving our youth better. Schools, but also violence among the youth. You know, two children were shot just Saturday night in Mosby Court, so I think helping the youth. There was a Channel 6 report when they were talking about a young man that had just gotten back on the football field because he had been shot. Uh, Mosby Court, mm -hmm. and while they were doing the interview, there was a gunfire. And the, did anybody see that? Mm -hmm. While they were doing the interview with the kid, there was a random gunfire yeah. shot in Mosby Court while he was doing the interview. And while youth are all around the football field, and he's like, "That's scary a little bit." He's like, "Yeah, a little bit, but I'm good." <laughs> you saw that, yeah, Jordan? Did you see that? Yeah. Wow. It's, it's Micah, um, <clears throat> I'd say uh, greatest issue right now is um, eliminating visible barriers where the people in the lower income think that they can't make it to where the people in the top mm -hmm. income and have enough people in the top income and income understand that without a strong foundation over there on the other side that their wealth won't last anyway. I think accessibility and communication are important things. We've got some transparency things that we try to put out there, but their transparency is a CYA type of mm -hmm. approach. I would say equity, mm -hmm. eliminating disparities. And we'll go back the other way as we wrap this up. And uh, just give your honest opinion when you think, think about what you just said is the biggest challenge you were facing and some of the things we talked about around the room. November 8th is the election day. After you vote going forward, wh whoever's in place, will your issues be addressed in the way you think they will be? Are we Honest so assuming a, a <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're assuming whoever wins uh, will, you know, will that, will that, will your issues be? Basically, what I'm trying to get to is, I, every vote matters. I think it's important that everybody goes out and votes. How much of it do you really think, in regards to some of the things we talked about around the table today, will change with the new administration? Oh. 
I'm, I'm skeptical partially because there are very few communities that have actually really tackled equity issues. There's a few cities, Seattle being probably the best, that have made that part of their agenda for everything that they do. Every policy has to have that lens. I haven't even seen it be a conversation anywhere here yet. So. Dang. Yeah, I'm with Matthew. I'm a little skeptical about it. I think depending on the, the ego of the person uh, elected could dictate how that goes. Um, well, my point, no, I don't think through the politicians would because there's too much risk for their reputations to really address that issue. I said, no, I mean, not unless people get involved. Yeah. Like, like, like what said earlier, like people got to take control for themselves and realize no one's going to do it for them. So we need literally a community-wide, a city-wide effort to pull ourselves out of many of the issues that we're experiencing. Yeah, I'm nervous. I don't see good things for the city of Richmond for the next mm -hmm. four years. I really don't. I don't know what to do about it. And I'm scared, to be honest. I love this city. I'll never leave it. And I'm nervous about what's about to happen because we got problems. We got big problems. I'm going to break with the trend of pessimism sure. a little bit. Yeah. Um, in saying, Please. Uh, in saying that the current mayor got a lot of flack during his term, most of it deserved. Um, but some seeds were planted over the course of Mayor Jones' administration, including his anti-poverty effort, the Office of Community Wealth Building, which is an attempt to envision a strategy for system change to actually cut poverty something like in half by 2030. And there were just some little footholds placed down, and it will require in deep engagement, and it will require, require much greater investment than we've seen. Um, there are some footholds there that should be built on and invested in and should be bought into better. And if the future mayor picks up on some of those goals and invests more ambitiously in them, I think there is some potential um, to, move the, to move the line, to make some progress. Yeah, I am not optimistic that racial reconciliation will be um, achieved in the next four years by any one person. Four hundred years? Or <laughs> four <laughs> years. But I am, I am actually looking forward to this election, and I look, I like democracy, so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Oh, no, on that note, what I'll say is uh, I, I also agree with the optimist in the group. I think I'm an optimist by nature in the sense that I think that Richmond and the region is doing a lot of things right. And I think, uh, I think all of us will agree that we're getting a lot of things right. But there is some really, really deep concerns that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And the problem is if there's been a history of people not wanting to talk about them. Even if they live and they're familiar with them and they're aware of them, they just don't want to talk about them in a way that makes meaningful change. Um, and I think I am optimistic that that type of approach to language, that type of approach to leadership is starting to change in regards to some of the people that we're seeing, even if it's running for public office at the local level, but just when you start to see some of the community leaders that you talk about, we've had a conversation for a good length of time now about the haves and the have-nots. And I think when you have more conversations about that and you actually start to strategically place things in place that try to change them, my concern is, um, as optimistic as I am, with changes that are going to need to be made moving forward, there is great pain involved in those. And there's pain when you talk about identity of communities, you talk about identity of historic situations. And what I've seen and what concerns me um, is that you don't, most of the reaction that I've seen in the Richmond community to pain that may be great in the long run still is opposition. And then the leaders at B probably don't feel like they have enough cover. They don't feel like they have enough political will or good gesture to accept the pain at the time. I'll give you a quick example before we wrap this up. And my concern is things like, there was a Richmond Public School, I don't even know the name of the school a few years ago, that had asbestos in the school. It was mm -hmm. actually physically unsafe mm -hmm. for the kids to go to that school. And they talked about closing that school and moving the kids to other schools because your kid would get sick if you were going to that school. And the community rallied around that school and literally had 
like protest about Don't keeping the school it. open while it was physically unsafe for you to attend the school. And what you saw, I think, from a lot of leaders in those types of positions was, well, the will of the people says we got to leave the school open. I don't yes. know if we're going to close the school. And so, you know, the I think I, I read a Facebook post. I don't want to attribute to anyone in particular. But they recently went to an Armstrong football game, a homecoming Armstrong football game. And they mentioned that, you know, turnout was pretty bad. Um, you know, the school wasn't in great shape. And, you know, the support really wasn't there. But when you say, okay, we're going to close Armstrong School, mm. there's 1,500 people at City Hall saying, let's keep this school open. This is our history. But those 1,500 people weren't at that homecoming football game. Right. They weren't buying the uniforms. They weren't supporting the school. And so I think the, the I am, long term point is I'm, I'm optimistic because of people like this around the table and people that I see out in the community. And I do think that they're having better conversations, but I think the challenge for all of us is that we've got to hold our, the guys that are running for mayor. We didn't talk very much with the guys that are running for city council, the guys that are running for school board. We really do have to hold them accountable, not just when they're knocking on your door during election season, mm -hmm. but you know, as soon as they win, they're already running for their election, whoever it is. And the person that may have lost, as soon as they lose, they're already running for election again. And we've got to make sure that those issues are being addressed um, in a meaningful way. And they do have plans for equity. And they do have plans for transit. And they do have plans for individual accountability. Um, and, you know, then it, it kind of, you know, you can have systems all day, but then it works to how we're going to implement those things and make our community a better place. Can I, can I just say real quick, people don't fear change, they fear loss. Yeah. Right? Positive change, if I gave anybody in this community a million dollars, there are very few people who would say, no, I don't right. want that kind of change in my life, <laughs> but they do fear loss. Right? And I think that's really important for leaders to think about and wrestle with. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for being a leader and trying to take a community right. through a transition? Yes, right. And, and that's why, can, can we, I want to be optimistic too. We didn't get to go. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I cut it off. I'm oh. But like, that's why, that's why I said governance, I think it's so important because when you say they don't have enough political will, because all their political will is sapped away every single day because they can't do, like, there isn't enough time in their days to do the basic things. Not because they're doing a bad job, it's just they're understaffed, they're underpaid, there's not enough resources, everything's falling apart. And we've got to get to a point where a leader can be like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be crazy, it's going to be stressful, but it can make the community better. We're just not at that point yet where that relationship can exist between community and government. And I think government's got to get way better before we can address any of these big picture things y'all said on this side of the table. I think we got to start small. As he said, you know, the gap between government and community, leadership's supposed to inspire leadership. So, you know, I like coffee, right? I like coffee. I got a cup. I like my coffee hot. It's cold as hell in here, right? If I ask you to give me a lid and you got to pass it all the way around, by the time I get there, my car's going to be cold. Even if you give it to me instead of me asking him, I'm still waiting for that damn lid. Until I decide to either go out there and get a lid myself or figure out why the hell it is I like coffee, how to get coffee, nothing's going to change. And on that note, we got to thank the wonderful people at Health Warrior. <laughs> and uh, we want to thank all of you guys for participating. So uh, this is episode three of The Table. We'll try to do uh, as many of these. We're going to do definitely another one as we lead into November 8th election. Uh, so I appreciate everyone being here. And it will be up as a podcast form on SoundCloud. I got to thank Matt, who is just... I wanted him to be an active participant, but he's filming way too much. And uh, obviously Jordan and the entire crew. So, um, <laughs> all right. But thanks, everyone. <laughs> Until next time.